Welcome to the Doxology Podcast. My name is Jens Nelson, and with me is... Lucas Stock. This is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. We thank you for joining us, as we always do. Uh, we're explorers, discussers, and growers uh, as, as followers of Christ. <laughs> nice. So on today's episode, Lucas, um, we're, gonna, we're just going to jump right in, I think, and it's it's a it's an interesting just like every episode every episode is interesting. interesting we only do interesting, interesting episodes <laughs> <laughs> um no but for real we're, we're doing an episode um on a manifesto it makes it sound so much cooler i almost just want to title this a manifesto and then they'll just be like you know cryptic and a manifesto manifesto it's our <laughs> manifesto on this manifesto <laughs> right exactly no um, but yeah, yeah if you want to tell us about what we're talking about i would love to and this is going to be, this is also interesting because if I'm correct, this is the beginning of our first series of episodes. Right. I mean, yes, yes and no, but more, more yes. I mean, technically <laughs> Christians of History is kind of like a series, but it's more like, it's not a series in the traditional way of thinking about a series, but this, like this manifesto we're going to be talking about for at least three weeks. Right. Three weeks in a row talking about um, the evangelical baptist catholicity manifesto published uh and represented by the center for baptist renewal which i'm just going to read their about us uh section um we'll put their hopefully we'll remember to put their website in the show notes so you can follow up with them as, and um follow them on social media and uh get into their stuff because it's a super cool organization um and I'm not even a Baptist. But the Center for <laughs> Baptist Renewal is a group of conservative evangelical Baptists committed to a retrieval of the great tradition of the historic church for the renewal of Baptist faith and practice. The work of the Center for Baptist Renewal is grounded in an affirmation of the supremacy of Scripture and a commitment to Baptist convictions as articulated in historic Baptist confessions. While we hope CBR will edify all kinds of Baptists, the CBR staff find the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, the BFM, to be an appropriate confession upon which to base our own work. However, fellows are not necessarily required to agree with every point of the Baptist faith and me- message, which, if you're not familiar, um, is the doctrinal statement, doctrinal standard, um, more or less, of the Southern Baptist Convention, just for those mm-hmm. of you who are not familiar with that. And um, really, it's that first half that really sums up what is so exciting and interesting and appealing about this organization to us is um the this organization the center is committed to a retrieval of the great tradition of the historic church for the renewal of baptist faith and practice which brings us to their manifesto for evangelical baptist catholicity so before we that's a mouthful before we, <laughs> before we dive into exactly what they have to say in this manifesto maybe it might be worth a little exploration of what exactly maybe it means to say um, Catholicity. Like, what is that referring to? Um, right. Obviously, so if you recall. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, if you recall, we had we had an episode um, at some point in our not-so-distant past where we discussed um, the Apostles' Creed, where that word Catholic comes up. Or the mm-hmm. word um, Holy Catholic Church 
and we we mentioned that that does not mean the the Roman Catholic big C you know establishment the Church of Rome, um, but the term Catholic has always meant universal, so it's talking mm-hmm. about the Church in all times, um, in all places. So you know it's 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 all who consider themselves to be um, believers in Jesus Christ, uh, constituting His body represented in the world in different denominations, different countries, different languages, different ethnicities. Um, but we recognize that one day um, those who profess faith in Christ will be united with him in glory. And so those are the Catholic believers, the true Catholic mm-hmm. universal church. And so um, when they're talking about Baptist Catholicity, uh, they're, they're, they're speaking of rooting the Baptist tradition in Catholicity, meaning in the universal church. It's right. um, the, the, the Baptist tradition isn't, I mean, it is distinct in its own ways, but it's not dis- so distinct that it's not part of, of this universal apostolic orthodox uh, church. And so I think it, this is a really cool organization, one that's seeking to um, really, I think, get to the, the roots as opposed to... Um, distancing themselves from the roots. I think there are some, you know, denominations and some who are guilty of wanting to sort of distance themselves, whether it's from the Reformation or the patristic era. Um, but really the, they want to see, um, the, the Baptist vision within the broader body of Christ today. That's, I think that's a good way. And do you want, is there anything I kind of left out? Do you want to add anything? No, I actually had, um, they, they have a, a section on their website where they explain Baptist Catholicity, and you almost quoted it verbatim. I don't even oh. think on purpose. So I think that you did a great job of, of representing what what they're all about and what what Baptist Catholicity is all about, what it means. So um, I think without further ado, we'll hop into the first few points of their manifesto. Um, it was written, it's available on the website. Um, it's, it was written by R. Lucas Stamps and Matthew Y. Emerson. Um, also, quick sidebar, we have mentioned Matt Emerson before yep. because when we talked about He Descended to the Dead, uh, I was just starting the book. That was, mm-hmm. again, the Apostles' Creed episode yep. where you know, he descended into hell. Exactly. So if you want to check out Matt Emerson's writing outside of this, check out that book. Very cool. So... Um, the manifesto has 11 points. We're going to take a few at a time. Uh, like we said, it's probably going to be about three weeks, might be four. We'll see how the conversation goes. Um, so we'll just, you know, like I said as well, the uh, manifesto is on their website. You can pull it up if you're able and follow along. Um, but we're just going to be reading point by point and sort of offering our thoughts, uh, not as, you know, geniuses or experts or authorities, but as growers and seekers and discussers on the journey that is the Christian faith. And well, and as, and as people that want to see this, whether it's Baptist mm. or not, I mean, we want to see the body of Christ as a whole, be Catholic, be unified, yeah. be um, joined together, not just in a 21st century model of, of church growth, but in a real deep and rooted mm sense within the christian tradition so that's why i think you being anglican me being more reformed baptist we we both like this even though we don't consider ourselves southern baptists Hmm. um, because this is something that we both care about so yeah yeah that's a really good way to put it and it is also i think going to be really interesting to see the overlaps and the distances that we have with our own the way we read this you know 
document and mm-hmm. how we take away, oh, that's cool, or oh, that's not cool, or hey, we, we like that, but it's for different reasons, or we don't like that, or one of us does, you know, like, and I think that that's, that calls back to just the unity and diversity that we, we've talked about um, really all throughout this podcast, but especially in our episode called Unity Within Diversity. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> we keep doing all the throwbacks, yeah. all the callbacks. <laughs> um, so anyway, we've said it before, but for real, without further ado, um, I'm going to read point one of the Evangelical Baptist Catholicity Manifesto. So point one reads, We affirm the ontological priority of the triune God and the epistemological priority of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Christian faith begins, is carried forth, and ends in God, in his being and works, and is made known to us in Holy Scripture. So There were a lot of big words in there. Talk about mouthful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right out the gate, they're, they're swinging for the fences. So let's take this like bit by bit. Not even sentence. So the by word sentence. we means uh, a collective. <laughs> um, I'm just kidding. So we affirm the ontological priority of the triune God. So let's stop right there. We've got ontolog. For me, what sticks out is ontological priority and triune. I think those are sort mm-hmm. of the three, the three things in that in that clause that we really got to kind of unpack. So, what what does ontological mean here? Are you asking me? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so ontological has to do with being. Um, it has to do with like what is real. So you know, there's if you if you've ever studied philosophy, you know, there's the ontological argument for the existence of God, um, which I, I probably should have looked it up before because now I'm blanking on exactly what the ontological argument is again. It's like um, so if you if you conceive of God in your mind. A being that is superior like transcendent and, and yeah. transcendent part of one of the characteristics of a perfect being is that it exists so therefore because we can conceive of a perfect being of which none no other being is greater that being must necessarily have the characteristic of being so it must it must have an ontological existence. Therefore, God is real. Um, Look at you. That was that was uh, that was good. So so what on, does it mean in this context that yeah. we affirm the ontological priority? So I think that um, ontological mean being talking about the very the substance of God, the being of God. We're not just talking about things he does or things that are true about him or things that we can say about him, but we're talking about what is, you know, what, like, what God actually is in himself, his existence, his ontology is, pri- is priority. It's number one. <laughs> it's before all other things. God is preeminent. You know, he is, he is the most important thing. He's the source of every other thing. He, Aquinas liked to talk about being the, the being that you and I have, that this table has, that, you know, an apple has, that ev- all that all of creation has, the only being that those things have are is that they participate in the being of God. Um, God's being is, is, takes priority over all other forms of being or things that exist. So, 
it's kind of heady philosophical language that is a philosophically precise way of saying that God is above all, before all, the source of all, um, and ultimately that is true because of who God is in himself, right. intrinsically. Um, so then, yeah. what is the epistemological priority of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? What does that word epistemological mean? So again, we see priority. So just like what, what, what the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit is to being, um, the word is to epistemology, which epistemology is a fancy, philosophically precise way of talking about what we know or are capable of knowing, how we know things, how we know what we know. How do we, you know, how can I ascertain truth? How can I take in, you know, uh, sensory data and process it and come to conclusions about things? Um, I think <laughs> is is no, how yeah. to sort of to sort of summarize what that means, and and so God is the source and and the preeminent. Um, of all being and the word which we'll get to those adjectives about the word i think next but the word um is epistemologically the priority it is the source the preeminent the um the source of knowledge that is above all other knowledge or all right. more more all other sources of knowledge um so just like it's you know God has ontological priority. That doesn't mean that this table doesn't exist ontologically. This table is is real. Um, the word is, you know, has epistemological priority. There are other sources of knowledge. Our senses, you know, I can look and 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 learn information about this table. That that's still true epistemologically, um, but ultimately the priority. The, the preeminent source of knowledge is the word of God. Right. So maybe to help clarify, you know, sometimes it's helpful to say what something is by saying what it is not. Um, and so, for example, uh, in, in our day and age, in our society, a lot of people, um, you know, th their source of knowledge comes from what they experience. So either what they feel um, individually or what they experience corporately. So like knowledge is almost like an internal process, an internal reality. Um, you can choose to be who you wanna be. You can self-actualize. You can, uh, you know, what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me. I mean, that's like relativism. Um, and that's a large part of, I guess, our society and the way that they think and the way that they interact with the rest of the world. And so I guess what this is trying to say is that even though feelings, even though thoughts, even though emotions have a place of importance, the thing that is preeminent, the thing that takes priority um, most abundantly is God's um, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. So do you want to maybe define the three eyes, you um, you Baptist, old Baptist boy who likes alliteration? Um, before I do that, what... 
what does it mean? Like, what is the word here in this sentence? You're saying like, what is the word? The bird is the word. <laughs> Other than the bird, what what does what do they mean? The word when they say, you know, his word. Yeah. Well, so that is scripture, um, holy scripture. The 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 sixty six books that make up the canon um, that we consider the Old and New Testaments today, um, and that's to differentiate from um, any sort of scripture that contains like the apocrypha or might contain um you know some of the pseudo uh gospels and some uh, what are they pseudo uh, i'm trying I'm like blanking on what they call that um uh pseudepigrapha that's what i was gonna say i just sounded dumb so i didn't, I didn't <laughs> no, know if that was right now we, now we both sound dumb if it's, if it's uh, wrong <laughs> well you know what that's what we said we're not the smartest people in the shed here um so anyway yeah they're talking what we're talking about is god's word um so if you opened up your esv nasb csb whatever bible KJV. um kjv only 1611 um we're talking about a book that we have in the English language, or if you speak Spanish, you might have a Spanish version, or if you speak Russian, maybe you have a Russian version. Um, but we're talk- what we're talking about is not that that English translation is inspired, inerrant, infallible, um, because we recognize that human editors, human compilers, human translators have taken from Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word and transmitted it to us today um, as if I think a very faithful representation, um, but still has error, has problems. Um, but we know that in their original autographs, in their original composition, when Paul put, you know, feather to papyrus or however he was <laughs> writing his letters, um, that that was the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word and will of God for his people. Because as we've said again in a previous episode, God chose to reveal himself. He did not um, leave us without a source of knowledge. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we've talked about general revelation versus special revelation. So general revelation is what we can experience with our senses, what we can see, touch, smell, feel. Um, And uh, over and above that is special revelation, which is his word. It is his uh, written revelation to his people so that we know who God is, you know, Genesis 1-1, who is God. Um, knowing who we are as humans, made in his image, how we how we ought to live, how we ought to work, how we ought to function in this world. And so that's that's getting to the root, I think, of what they mean by word. Yeah. And specifically, there are three other claims about the word. Um, inspired, inerrant, infallible. Each of these, I'm sure, could and probably should be, you know, an episode on, on their own just be just to do like i'm sure we, we'll do it in the future yeah i mean uh, this is something that's that's probably always going to come up um but so inspired you know is it just like really inspiring like oh i i watched rocky four last night and it was just such an inspiring <laughs> movie like it really makes me want to go out and change the world is that what it means um uh, no um inspired you know the classic uh the classic proof text, which is often a bad thing, but proof text isn't always a bad thing. <laughs> um, but the the classic proof text is, I always forget if it's first or second, Second Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed, God breathed. 
which theonoustos yep which is literally the word god and breath put together um, a word that paul himself coined is what we think no it did not exist as its own independent word before makes sense and also the act right? of god <laughs> breathing out scripture all scripture is god breathed and is useful for you know that that list of things but all scripture is god breathed so scripture the written word of god is inspired by god it's breathed out by god it doesn't come when we say that the word of god is inspired what we're talking about is it doesn't come from humanity it doesn't come from the mind of human beings human beings wrote it human beings crafted the letters and the narratives and the songs and the poems that that come together to um form what we know as the bible but the the content was inspired meaning it the content came from god and was revealed through the human writings versus just being human writings written by interesting or smart or cool people so when we mentioned a couple episodes ago um when we were at moody um dr wexler and when I took his class Bible intro, I remember he when we when we talked about inspiration and um, you know inerrancy and stuff, he he went to an Acts passage, which the citation is escaping me, but it's where it says that no um, no part of Scripture was um, you know man's own interpretation, mm-hmm. but uh, he was carried along by the Spirit. Basically, he was born along. And um, that the wording that is used that actually might be like Second Peter, but it, like the word that is used carried along um, is also found in Acts, speaking of like a ship being carried. Mm-hmm. Think of like a, an old sailboat that is on the waters, and the the wind filling up the sails and carrying it. Like that's a, a helpful imagery to think about inspiration. You know, and you know maybe no graphic is is perfect, but like think about like the vessel is still moving, but it's not the source of the movement. The source of the movement is the wind that comes from outside of it. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, that makes total sense. And then inerrant. So inerrant, you know, basically just without error. So earlier you said that our Bibles have errors, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you so go to how can any you, translation. How can you, uh, how can you say this, man? If, if the Bible is inerrant, how can the Bible have errors? <laughs> well, you see, like I said, <laughs> the, the English <laughs> translations that we have today are full of errors. Um, you know, maybe some of the errors are incorrect translations of word uh, of a word. Um, maybe some of the errors are um, poor grammar or uh, punctuation, punctuation mistakes or um, the fact that the original authors, like Paul didn't, set out to write the letter to the Romans and break it down by chapter and verse. Um, you know, those are man, man-made man creations to help with citations and memorizing and finding things. Um, but you, anytime you look at a translation, especially if you're comparing translations, if you're reading, you know, if you're reading the NASB versus the ESV um, versus the NIV versus the mess, well, the message is a paraphrase, so we won't talk about the message, but um, <laughs> if we're looking at NIV, ESV, NASB, the wording is going to be different. And someone someone who might not have any knowledge of this might be like, what's the deal? Why are all these versions different? Which one is right? Um, well, that's, that's a great question. It comes down to translation philosophy, meaning are they a thought for thought 
translation? Are they a word for word? Um, because the way that you set out to do the translation is going to change how you think about what you're translating. Because when you're taking a concept, especially some of those more dense, archaic, old, um, you know, like ways of speech that we wouldn't recognize, like for a translator, they can look at it and be like, well, I'm going to represent what is being said in a thought for thought manner. I'm not going to be as precise as I want to be because it's going to sound clunky. Whereas like, so that, that might be like the NIV. NIV is more thought for thought. Whereas the NASB is one of the most literal translations that we have in English. So there are times where it sounds a lot more clunky. There are like bigger words that are, you know, maybe more theologically loaded. Um, but when we think about, you know, when we come to any text, we recognize that it is imperfect because it is being translated by imperfect people. Though, um, especially those who set out to do a really good job in translating, they are being faithful to what was once the inerrant manuscript. So it's perfect, preserved, and the way that we can know this is there are literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of manuscripts, um, all with just like, if they have variation, it is like the slightest, slightest variation. Um, so we can trust that when we are reading English, even though it's English, it's being faithful to the originals, which this is becoming a whole different tangent, but this is why I think it's important to have a really good translation. You shouldn't be using the message as like your preaching Bible. Like that might be good if you want to get like a very high overarching like thought for thought paraphrase. Um, but like the, the example I always go to is Psalm 1 where it says like, um, j just read Psalm 1 in the ESV and then read it in the message. Because in the message it says something like, you don't go to smart mouth college. You don't walk in the way of, I don't even remember how it goes, but it is just like the most ridiculous wow, thing I've I think I've ever read. Before. I'll have to do Here, that later. You, you say something, I'm going to look it up and then I'll read it while you're, say something. <laughs> So yeah, so the errors we're talking about are not errors in the content of the original, I think you said autographs, meaning the original documents, like the actual letter Paul wrote or the actual first copy of, you know, First Kings or whatever. Um, the the errors are, and even error might not be the most precise wording when we're talking about just the, the changes that happen as you translate text. I mean, you can even think about this if you've ever put something into Google Translate and then like put it back through Google Translate a couple times um, from like... <laughs> it like gets completely messed right. up. And that's just, I mean, obviously like human translators are doing a better job than Google Translate, but the point is translation, the way the way human language, I mean, this is a whole episode, the, the way human language works, it's, it's not, there, there's no such thing as a one-to-one -one equivalence between two different languages because... Right, They're, they wouldn't be different languages then. So it's not. It's it's all like I almost even wanna, like even one language. Yeah, like English yeah. in a sixteen eleven translation of a Bible is going to be confusing. <laughs> right, and I language almost changes. so I almost want to shy away from saying that like the translations have errors. Not because I I mean I, sometimes there are errors, but I'm just saying like um, for the most part we're not talking about like oh the ESV says this. So like if you read Romans in the ESV, you got to remember it's wrong. Like that's not what we're right. talking about. But no. what we're talking about is that. The translations that we have, the copies of the original Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic that we have, the translations in all the different languages from all the different points of Christian history are not perfect texts. The perfect right. texts are the original texts that are being faithfully, albeit imperfectly, 
represented Transmitted through, down. through tr- the transmission and into different languages, into different um, parts of the world and all that. And what's really important, even more so than inerrancy, in my opinion, is the infallible word of God. Infallible, meaning it can't make a mistake. So, right. it, you know, that I used to be kind of confused, like, what's the difference between there's no errors and it can't make a mistake? You know, like, that almost sounds like the same thing. Redundant. But, but really, like, I would, I would want to put inerrancy more. We're talking about the text itself and infallible we're talking about the content the truths the teaching the (laughs) the the bible doesn't teach us something about god or mankind or the world that is somehow (laughs) false or wrong um right and i mean yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's good. I mean, <laughs> right. Well, here, so real quick, I just want to show you those differences because they're, it's, it's just too funny not to share. So this is the ESV, Psalm 1, verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That was the ESV. Now here's the message. How well God must like you. You don't hang out at Sin's Saloon. You don't slink along Dead End Road. You don't go to Smart Mouth College. Instead, you thrill to God's word. You chew on scripture day and night. I'm getting serious <laughs> Pharisee and publican vibes. Oh, man. <laughs> um, it just, like, it cracks me up when I when I first read that in the message. I was like, what is this even? <laughs> uh, use, yeah, use... <laughs> Before we move on, use translation. <laughs> use translations, not yeah. Paraphrases. Don't use a paraphrase. Okay, uh, and I think that the the second sentence of this first point: Christian faith begins, is carried forth, and ends in God, in His being and works, and is made known to us in Holy Scripture. Really sums up what that first sentence that we just spent like twenty minutes dissecting means. Like, so what? Right. Um, the fact that the triune God has ontological priority means that. In God's being and works is the beginning, middle, and end of Christian faith. And the fact that the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God has epistemological priority means that that Christian faith, which begins, is carried forth, and ends in God, is made known to us in Scripture. Um, and, and I think that that's, they, they do a really good job of, of giving both the more philosophical sort of claim and then summarizing it in a way that that really brings home the practical implications of it um, yeah it's good yeah so that's point one i don't know if you've got anything else you want to add or no, we, we, we can, can jump on. right into point two all right fire so away point two let's do it we affirm the centrality of the gospel the good news of salvation through the incarnation life death and resurrection of the son of god for christian faith life and worship so we affirm the centrality of the gospel for Christian faith, life, and worship. And they sort of like, you know, they have that in-between section where they kind of define what they think the gospel is, the good news of salvation, which is the work of Jesus in his incarnation, life, death, and resurrection. Um, you know, there's not a lot. I mean, there is a lot <laughs> that can be unpacked here. There's not a lot that we like disagree with or um, have issue with. I mean, it's all like, yeah, that's that's what the Christian life is. Um, I do think, I do think that if you were to sit down with a group of people, this might 
play itself out in different ways for different traditions um in more specific details maybe um but i especially from a protestant perspective um which is itself a very broad segment of the the church but um especially from a protestant perspective i think that the basic claim here like you're saying is is pretty would be pretty easy to affirm this point for 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 many groups of christians even if the details of what it means for the gospel to be central to christian faith life and worship looks different in certain instances or maybe we use different language to speak about certain things um I, I do think that there's there's not a ton here to like say my my only yeah. comments are like when when I think about we affirm the centrality of the gospel um you know I'm, I'm glad they define what they mean by gospel because obviously they're not talking about a prosperity gospel they're not talking about a works-based salvation gospel um, but we're talking about the good news of salvation so even that sentence there is giving us a picture into what they're talking about that it's already speaking a little bit into the plight of man, the sin of man without even saying it. It's sort of implicit that salvation is part of what it means that the gospel is. It is part of the good news. Um, and you know, we could have entire episodes on the incarnation on the, and the resurrection. Um, but when we think about how we live our Christian life, um, how we think about our faith, our, our worship, how we interact, not just on Sundays, but you know, in, in life, you know, rubbing shoulders, it all comes down to a centrality of the gospel. Without the gospel, the Christian faith is nothing. I mean, without Jesus's life, um, death, burial, and resurrection, um, and ascension, what what else do we have? So that, that's sort of really the only comment I wanted to make on this one. Yeah, the only other thing I would add is they don't say ascension. You just did, but it's not in the point. So maybe, maybe in the second edition, they'll add ascension. <laughs> um, <laughs> there you go. And they, they also didn't mention descent either, and Matt Emerson wrote this, at least partially. <laughs> they do say so, death. Maybe it's what, maybe that's implied. Maybe it's implied. <laughs> Come on, Matt. We we expected better, Matt. Come on. Um All right, yeah. I yeah, I think that's a pretty pretty nifty little little point there. Not to de- not to get to, a tattooed on my back. Yeah. <laughs> um so yeah, I mean I think just we can kind of move on to point three. Um Cool. We affirm the fundamentals of reformational theology, especially as they are expressed in the great soli of, or solas, of the Reformation. Fallen humanity can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the basis of scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. So, the, you know, before we say what it is that they're affirming, the, the five, the, the, the well, they, they list all five. I think some people have debate over whether there should be five or three but the 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 solas or or in latin the soli of the reformation these are pretty popular latin phrases like maybe you haven't heard them spelled out in strung together like that in here but things like sola fide um sola gratia solus christus sola scriptura of course we're all super familiar with that i'm sure um and Oh boy. Soli Deo Gloria. Thank you. I couldn't remember the my Latin. I haven't taken Latin since like what was it? 
kindergarten eighth grade um you actually took latin for in middle school yeah i went to a wow. i went to a private school and we, we took oh we that's took why Litton. Litton. we took latin um, <laughs> and it was lit <laughs> i wish that's i had paid more attention cool. and like continued with it would it come in handy for your biblical scholarship yeah because now when i eventually when i go back to seminary i'm gonna have to take latin to to do some some historical work anyway um <laughs> so that that's what those what those what they mean you know the the great solas of the reformation are sort of the i don't i don't mean this in like a cheesy way like the the catchphrases that sort of summarize the key points of reformational theology as they put it it, would that be sort of a decent way to sort of encapsulate what the point of the solas are yeah they were sort of like you know we've said before that the reformation wasn't some sort of revolution you know we don't call it the revolution uh, you know the we call it the, the Reformation. I don't know what else to say. Like, it's not a revolution. It wasn't like they were trying to start a new church. They were trying to reform what already existed. And by by reforming, these were like the big tenets that they were really fighting for, is that um, salvation only comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, and the other two, you know, on the basis of Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, um, are, are part of that too. But really the, the heartbeat of, of these reformational theology pieces are is the fact that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone so our works don't save um you know praying to to saints um you know buying indulgences like these do not grant salvation to anyone it comes by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone so it's a it's a gift that we cannot receive um, it's something that we can never achieve on our own, but Christ alone accomplishes it. And the way that we learn about this, the way that we learn that salvation comes by grace through faith in Christ is on the basis of Scripture. It's what we learn in his word. It's what we learn in the New Testament, um, in his gospels, in letters that Paul and Timothy and Peter and John write. Um, and all of it is summed up in that phrase, to the glory of God alone. This isn't for man's glory. That's not why you know, salvation exists so that man can boast, but it's so that we boast um, in God and in Christ. Right. And here, I think it is interesting that I'm a child of the Reformation. I don't say this as as a critic, but I find it interesting that point three on our Catholicity manifesto kind of sets, you know, kind of draws some lines in the sand in terms of the way that here on out the document is necessarily going to be received by those who don't affirm the fundamentals of reformational theology um and i don't i don't know really what else to say about that at this point you know like like i said i i don't have a problem with reformational theology especially like in general you know um and it's just it's just interesting to to sort of start to think through what does it mean for, for what does it mean for reformational churches to participate in the Catholic Church in in the great tradition um, I think is an interesting conversation that obviously people are going to have different opinions on some people are going to say oh I'm reformational and I don't think we should try some people are going to say oh I'm I'm Roman and I don't think that you 
deserve to call yourself Catholic. You know, like there's, there, but I think what's more reasonable is is seeing the seeing the Reformation as um, consistent with the Catholic faith because it really is. Right. If you if you and that's what that's what I was gonna say is like the 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 reform again the Reformation wasn't trying to start a whole new thing. It was getting to the roots, going back to the patristic era, going back to the apostolic era. It is a retrieval more than, again, a revolution. It's trying to mm-hmm. retrieve. And I think that's also what this manifesto is seeking to do as heirs of the Reformation, which means we are also heirs of the apostolic Catholic Orthodox faith right. um, that we can retrieve instead of, you know, try to trudge forward um, through a path. Like, why create a path that doesn't exist when one is already there? Or like, you know, you mentioned a couple weeks ago, the the, the stream with its different depths, its different, you know, rushing currents. Um, like, why would you try to start digging a new tributary or, you know, another little, 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 you know, little creek along the side when it's like you already have the path laid, just mm-hmm. flow down with it. Yeah. Um, and it's not even a matter in this case, it's not even a matter of what's easiest for us. Like, like in general, if you have a road, why build a new one? But like more when we're talking about the church, when we're talking about theology, when we're talking about the Christian faith, like when you start building new roads, you start leaving the Christian faith. <laughs> right. <laughs> maybe, maybe in greater or lesser degrees, you know, but, but, it's not only is it just make more sense and is simpler to recognize the grace that God has given us in giving us a church for the last 2000 years, but it's also safe, (laughs) you know? And I think that, that I think of, um, I think of, so St. St. Cyprian, he, he has a famous quote of, you cannot have God as your father if you do not have the church as your mother. And that can go, you know, that, that there's, there, there's a lot that can be said about that, but I think something that, that flows out of that is, and, it, and that holds true even for us reformational Christians who are not trying to buck, you know, 1500 years of history and pretend it didn't exist or wasn't important. Um, but recognizing that, well, actually what the reformers were doing was recognizing the abuses that the medieval Western church had fallen into and retrieve and recover those original, you know, practices and doctrines. And, and not that everybody got it right, not that there isn't still room for debate, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is just that well, like, it's not a new thing. You know, it's not a and- new development Right, and you could almost like make the modern day, like if you want to put this in a modern con, con, uh, context, like let, let's just say that we're going to transpose Catholic, um, like Roman Catholic into modern, let's just say like prosperity teaching. So the prosperity teaching is very large. Uh, we think very heretical, think that like, you know, even if a man like Joel Osteen gets up on stage with a Bible in his hand, doesn't mean that he's teaching scripture. doesn't mean that he's being a faithful Orthodox Christian. And so perhaps, you know, let's just say 15 years from now, somebody from within that world tries to reform, tries to be like, hey, whoa, like I'm reading my Bible here. And like, there's nothing about all this health, wealth, and prosperity. Like, let's, let's get back 
to like the roots of Christianity. Like that's again, uh, you know, maybe won't even happen. Um, but that's sort of like a modern, I, you know, maybe a modern idea, a modern con concept of, of what sort of took place, um, and spawned an entire, you know, reformation that we now are heirs of today. So, yeah, I think that that's, um, pretty much sums it up. I think we can move on to point four, if you're ready. Let's do it. Um, I forget whose turn is it to read? Oh yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it's mine. Um, I'm on the even ones here. So, uh, point four, we affirm the distinctive contributions of the Baptist tradition as a renewal movement within the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. These distinctives include the necessity of personal conversion, a regenerate church, believers, baptism, congregational governance, and religious liberty. So I know right off the bat, Lucas, that um, being Anglican and not Baptist, you're going to have a little bit of pushback. You're going to have um, perhaps a little bit more to say than I will have to say, because for me, as you know, someone who is Reformed Baptist, somebody who would, um, you know, sort of be in this same stream, so to speak, I, I I'm almost in like complete agreement. So like I I have been itching to hear what you were gonna say because I know you sort of mentioned it that you wanted to say something here. Yeah, and before I say anything, I want to say that this is with great respect and humility, not just to you or not just to the people at Center for Baptist Renewal, but just across the board. I'm not. You saying, saying you have says, respect for me? You res- you respect me a little bit. <laughs> of course, of course, of course. Uh, on air, at least. Okay. <laughs> um, but, so, I, yeah, again, I, I'm not trying to say this as some sort of gotcha or dis, dis, you know, dismissive or, you know, anything like that. Um, I will say, I... What's interesting to me is the way that this point is is written. Um, it, it says that that we affirm the distinctive contributions of the Baptist tradition as a renewal movement within the one holy Catholic apostolic. So what we're talking about, the the church across the board, the church across all times, all nations, all um, places. Um, like the whole reason we're reading this and that we're excited about it, that is, is placing and situating the Baptist tradition in the one church broadly right. speaking. Well, cause there are, there are some people who would <clears throat> say that like, there are some fundamentals. Again, we're talking about some of the, the distinctive contributions. There are some that would say that the Baptist contributions are not part of Catholicity. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there, I mean, maybe some Presbyterians or, you know, some other denominations, but um, the whole point of this organization is to say that like Baptists are a part of, of this renewal of this retrieval and this is what they're saying. This is these are the distinctives that they see as being part of that greater tradition. And that's where I have my thoughts. You my, got your beef. My sure. My my hams um, is that it it's not. I, I don't have beef with the idea that the Baptist tradition has distinctive contributions. Um, to give to the theological conversation of all Christians. I, I don't think it's, I, I think that 
Baptists traditionally, like historically as well as today, do, you know, would see the Baptist movement as a renewal movement within the church. Um, and so, so I don't think it's like an inaccurate statement. You know what I mean? Um, what I find interesting is the specific distinctives they list as a renewal movement within the one holy Catholic apostolic church to me almost kind of undo that idea. So I'll, I'll get into it. The necessity of personal conversion, a regenerate church, believers, baptism, congregational government, governance, and religious liberty. I don't think this is too controversial of, of a, a claim or a, a um, position to say that every individual needs to have ownership over their faith. They can't just rely on the faith of their family or their community. Um, that I, I'm fine with. I don't think that's inconsistent in any sense with historic Orthodox Christianity um, that I've ever come across. Um, so that one, we don't need to really spend more time on. Um, I'm going to skip to the end. Religious liberty is incredibly unique in Christian history, just yeah. as it is in history in general. Um, and it's, it's very recent in the grand scheme of things. I like religious liberty, and I, I think that that is one of the... Um, I, I think it, it can take certain forms that maybe are less... I'm less jazzed about. Maybe we can have an episode about that sometime too. But yeah. um, overall, I think one of the strengths of the Baptist movement, especially like historically speaking, is an emphasis on religious liberty. That can you give us like was, some examples of what that means? What does religious liberty pertain to? Right. So basically, um, the the it, it's almost so. It, I would say it's very much something taken for granted here in the United States because it's baked into our cultural identity as well as right. our constitution and the first amendment but the freedom to worship how you please to not worship to worship whatever god you want um from a political perspective like so we're talking about not having a state church so separation between church and state we're talking about not having laws that curtail the religious rights of people of x religion or to say you have to go to an Episcopalian church. You have to go to um, a mosque. You, you, if you're Jewish, you're not allowed to gather for worship. Those sorts of things. Um, I think that, particularly in in the pluralistic society that exists in the modern world, I think that's a it's a good thing. So, so yeah. I, I, you know, so I'm left with regenerate church, believers' baptism, and congregational governance. And what I'm what I struggle with in in thinking about these things is these are things and we, we can dive a little bit into them here um not too much detail but um these are things that are not like for something to be a renewal of the one church implies to me and maybe i'm sort of misinterpreting what exactly is being said here um but it implies to me like they use the phrase, the terminology of retrieving the great tradition. When we were talking about the Reformation a few minutes ago, we were talking about not starting something new, but going back to the sources of the faith and and, rec and in order to address the 
current, the, the contemporary issues and abuses that were going on in the Western church during the Middle Ages, those sorts of things. What's interesting to me, believer's baptism is not attested before the Anabaptists in the, in the Radical Reformation. I'm not gonna, I'm not, when I say that, I'm not going to say that there is zero people throughout history who taught that. Um, but what I'm saying as far as segments of the Orthodox Catholic Church, go back to the patristic era, it's, as far as I know, unanimously, you know, infant baptism, not only that, but baptismal regeneration was the, the Orthodox position. Um, I, I believe the Montanists, the, the heretics that Tertullian joined, practice believers baptism i'm not saying that baptists are heretics wow. or baptists are Montanists. So that, that's the that's the retrieval right there you're trying to <laughs> retrieve some heresy is that what you're saying <laughs> no that's not what i'm saying <laughs> um i i'm trying to flex my my church history muscles and wow. make people think i'm smarter than i am um a uh, a regenerate church i suppose if you believe in baptismal regeneration then you would say that if you believed in baptismal regeneration and infant baptism, then you would say that the the church membership was regenerate because all the babies who were baptized were right. regenerated. But well, I don't so I, think I, I'm curious that's if you. Quite what so they the way mean. that I read this one, though, like so, I read regenerate church as opposed to like like seeker sensitive, like seeker friendly, um, like modern churches that are like like the the church membership church participation is regenerate like you don't have you know unbelievers who are who are participating in some of like you know passing communion or you know things like that i think that's maybe the right distinction. I, I think it's more of like the way i take it is, is is it's it's a technical term that church membership is reserved for people who are regenerate, regenerate. okay um yeah. i can see that the the issue the the thing is that a and I'm, I'm deliberately waiting to get to believer's baptism, but it's related. A, a Baptist theology, you know, ba- what I'm trying to say is, is, or I already talked about believer's baptism, I mean congregational governance. In, in many ways, Baptist ecclesiology, I, I don't, I, I think it is very, it's very different than traditional ecclesiology. And, and, and I know that that, even in itself, you can't really say there's such a thing as traditional ecclesiology because you've got, Every tradition has its own ecclesiology. But what I'm trying to get at is regenerate church membership. It doesn't work if you, like, unless you redefine it to to make room for baptismal regeneration, it doesn't work for, if you practice infant baptism because you have to say, you know, and I think that baptism is tied to regeneration and scripture does speak that way, the washing of regeneration in Titus. Um, but that's, that's a, different conversation around baptism itself right um but congregational governance historically i mean i like you bishops arrive immediately after the close of the new testament and i'm what i'm not saying here and let me be clear i'm not saying that an episcopal form of church polity is divinely ordained in scripture and any other form of church governance is sin that's going against scriptural commands. I'm not saying that. I'm glad you what made I that am clarification, saying, just for my sake. What I am saying is that, historically speaking, you have bishops 
virtually immediately in church history. Hmm. You don't have congregational governance, certainly in any wide, you know, I, I, I mean, Anabaptists, I believe, I don't know about all of them, but I believe they practiced. And, and for those who aren't necessarily familiar, Anabaptists, in the, where we're a group in the Reformation, they are not the same thing as Baptists. They, they have a lot of overlap, like Believer's Baptism, which is where they get their name from, which means re-baptizing. But they, 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 they come out of different contexts, and they are not, like if you looked at a family tree, they're, they're close together in a lot of their doctrines, but they're not, like, they're, they don't come they're from the same. They're not brothers. Right. They're, they're, they're closer Distant to cousins. cousins. Um, but anyway, um, I, I think they had some congregational governance. I mean, they had a lot of unique things, obviously. But, um, but prior to prior to you know post reformation I, I i don't believe congregational governance was really even even a thing let alone like widespread right you know what i mean let alone and and so what i'm getting at here is is not so much trying to refute any of these positions cuz like i said there are there are two that i don't really have a problem with i right b- believe i generally agree with there are three, the other three I, I don't necessarily agree with. I think that regenerate church membership is maybe needs to be defined a little bit. You know, I think that there's some room for a conversation there. Obviously, as an Anglican, just definitionally, I don't, I don't restrict baptism to, to adult believers or, or older believers. And I don't practice congregational. I mean, currently I am attending a congregational church. I was going to say. <laughs> but I, I don't. You know, as an Anglican, the Anglican Church obviously does not practice congregational church governance, and I like bishops. Um, I like Episcopal government. Again, these are all. I'm not trying to to refute any positions as much as saying it's it's interesting to me to to highlight these specific right renewal distinctives because well, so here, it seems to it seems to set some distance between. The, the tradition that is contributing these distinctives and the the great tradition that that it is supposedly renewing because they, they seem to like believers baptism congregational governance they seem so removed from apostolic patristic medieval practice and even right. reformation practice broadly speaking that it's 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 interesting to me and it's where it's where I it's the reason this point stuck out to me the most when I first right. read through this document. So I'm, I'm curious cause I want to go back to a word, a word like, um, Oh man, why am I blank? I, I just like completely drew a blank. I'm sorry. Infallible. Um, mm-hmm. go back to a word like infallible. So when, when we read scripture, um, I like your distinction between inerrant and infallible. And when we're talking about, you know, God's word, his special self revelation to us as believers for how we ought to live in this world, how we ought to, love and glorify him, how we ought to love and serve one another. Um, in that context, when we consider, when we consider that the, like some of these things aren't mandates in scripture, like there's no passage that says baptize your babies. Um, you know, I, I know that there are, I know both arguments on both sides for, um, you know, baptizing babies and for baptizing believers. Um, I know there there are proof texts and there um, there are different things, but the thing is because it doesn't mandate it, because it doesn't prescribe it one way or another, we have a audiophora, a, a liberty, um, 
to, and as they even say, um, you know, in point number two, you know, we affirm the centrality of the gospel for Christian faith, life, and worship. So in a sense, because some of these things aren't completely mandates from scripture as like, these are things you ought to um, observe and do, that there is a a little bit of liberty in how we worship then. Because some of this pertains to life, faith, and worship, right? It pertains to how we um, interact in the in the public sphere. It changes how we interact in the, the church sphere. Um, so yeah, personal conversion, that's like obviously like in scripture, like when, it, when we talk about salvation by justification, um, that's like a no-brainer. Um, but if we're going to talk about, you know, regenerate church, believer's baptism, congregational governance, like these are things that... Um, perhaps are spawned out of other conversations. But I think the whole point of this manifesto is that this distinctive, these things that, I mean, it says that we affirm the distinctive, these are distinctive contributions of the Baptist tradition. Even if some other traditions will affirm them, these mark the Baptist tradition. And I think the whole point is that these, because we believe these distinctives, does not uh, sever us from the tree. We are not cut off, but we are part of the same tree. We are part of the same body. You know, it's not like we're chopping off an arm if we want to consider ourselves Baptist. So I think that's the whole point. It's not not even that they're trying to find the retrieval in every single point, because maybe, like you're saying, maybe they can't find believers' baptism in the patristic era, um, or maybe not like great evidence of it. Um, but the point is, is that like because of Scripture, um, because of what it does teach and what it doesn't teach. Uh, we can have some liberty in certain things and still be considered brothers. And like when we can, when we think about that in like the broader, I guess like scheme of things, the fact again we keep getting back to unity amongst diversity. We've talked about it in an episode. We've mentioned it in this episode. Um, the fact that like God allows for this sort of thing to happen. It's and it's an expression of His own diversity amongst His unity. Um, some of the um, you know, the beauty that is within the Trinity, this triune God, you know, as we affirmed in point number one here, um, that as the people of God, that we have the liberty, the ability by God's grace to do these things um, and to still be considered part of the body, I think is a cool thing. So I think that's why it's really important that they are, you know, we're talking about evangelical Baptist Catholicity being um, ingrained, retrieved, um, renewed, uh, I think it's, I don't know, I think it's an important thing that needs to be discussed in the modern circles of theology and scholarship. Yeah, I think that's really helpful, that perspective sort of sort of exploring a little bit more, you know, differently than how I'm, I'm reading it. I think that it is really helpful. And yeah, I think, I do think it's still a very interesting conversation um, because I'm not interested in pushing Baptists as a tradition outside of the outside the camp outside the camp outside the stream of the one catholic apostolic church i that's not my intention and and where i do disagree with people who are genuine honest you know um faithful people who believe and are and are trying to um work out their salvation with fear and trembling and and work through what the Bible teaches. Like I don't, I don't have any interest in fighting about those things. You know, what's um, ironic. I, I just, yeah. What's ironic is the one who binds the conscience on these things. So the one who reads this and is like, man, I don't agree. You have to believe these things. 
that is worse than somebody who professes these things because to to either bind someone's conscience or to um, declare that we have to do something when it is not something we have to do in my opinion would be worse than somebody who just is believing these and just living faithfully i'm curious what you think of that 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 that, that thought came to my mind i i i mean yeah i'm all about not binding people's consciences that's not up to me that's up to the word of god right that the rubber hits the road when you start saying okay you know okay baptist you're denying you're denying the holy sacrament of baptism to your children and then baptist turns around and says okay presbyterian okay anglican you're applying baptism against you know inappropriately in a way that that goes against what it what it is and what it does and signify and so while those conversations can and should be had in love as brothers and sisters not as enemies and not even as like cousins or neighbors but but as brothers and sisters in christ the same like, body um those are conversations where you know there are there are some really serious theological things implications theolog- at least. you know implications yeah. and 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 um and practice in in worship and and um teaching that that are they're significant obviously and i i I agree i agree with you on on that i was just thinking more of like you know the the troll on twitter or something that is just trying to be like (laughs) you know baptists are dumb they believe this like how they're a bunch of heretics or something i know that's completely general example but like I, i i was trying to say that that is worse than somebody who is living these things out faithfully um from a conviction sure. that this is what scripture teaches. <laughs> but I, that was just yeah. a completely off the cuff. So No, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, very we're we're kind of come we're we're over a little bit um we don't have a strict schedule, but <laughs> but we're over our average. So I'll I'll say that we're going over But time. under our worst. <laughs> um so yeah, I think that you know, if you're good, I think we can wrap I'm it good. up there. Um, so that brought us through point four. We'll continue this, like we said, in in the coming weeks to get through the rest of this. And I think that this hopefully, is probably part one of three. I think. Yeah, it looks like if that's what it'll end up being. Um, but hopefully, this was an interesting conversation. Um, hopefully, you know, if you haven't heard of the Center for Baptist Renewal, you haven't read anything, um, whether it's this manifesto or any of their blog posts or books that their fellows have written, um, really you know, check it out. Um, seriously, it's a really cool organization. And remember, I'm not the Baptist one saying that it's a really cool organization. Right, exactly. That's um, that's why and, I love it. But dude, I just want to say, I am really excited about the next time we record an episode of uh, the Catholic uh, Baptist Catholicity Manifesto. Because um, those first couple of points, whew, it's going to be good. good. <laughs> it's going to be good. Um, so I will um, conclude with with some some prayer. So we're recording this. It's now nine forty three p.m. It's eight forty three p.m. Bro, come on. <laughs> Unity Time and diversity. <laughs> um, in uh, it is it is the Tuesday after Trinity Sunday. It is June ninth. Um, I'm going to so because it is later in the evening. I'm going to pray um, some of the collects from today's uh, daily evening prayer um, for. Um, from the Book of Common Prayer 2019. So let us pray. Grant, O Lord, that the course of this world may be so peaceably ordered by your providence that your church may joyfully serve you in quiet confidence and godly peace 
through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, and by your great mercy defend us from all perils and dangers of this night, for the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. O God, you manifest in your servants the signs of your presence. Send forth upon us the spirit of love, that in companionship with one another, your abounding grace may increase among us, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. O most mighty and merciful God, in this time of grievous sickness, we flee to you for comfort. Deliver us, we beseech you, from our peril. Give strength and skill to all those who minister to the sick. Prosper the means made use of for their cure, and grant that, perceiving how frail and uncertain our life is, we may apply our hearts unto that heavenly wisdom which leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Almighty God, whose blessed Son, Jesus Christ, went about doing good and healing all manner of sickness and disease among the people, continue in our hospitals his gracious work among us, especially in this time of plague and pandemic, console and heal the sick, grant to the physicians, nurses, and assisting staff wisdom and skill, diligence and patience, prosper their work, O Lord, and send down your blessing upon all who serve their suffering serve the suffering through jesus christ our lord amen amen <clears throat> well thank you once again so much for tuning in to and listening to this episode of the doxology podcast if you'd like to connect with us you can hit us up on twitter at doxology podcast or instagram at doxology podcast or email us at doxology podcast at gmail.com We'd love to hear your feedback, your questions, ep- ideas for future episodes, um, as well as uh, you just letting us know what's going on. Let us know what's if you're up? a Baptist or not. Kind of curious. <laughs> Sign up for the newsletter. Um, that link will be down below. Um, we'd love to connect with you in that way, keep you up to date with any announcements or upcoming episodes that are going on. Please check out the Center for Baptist Renewal. Um, and we look forward to uh, hearing from you and also uh, you hearing us in the near future with our next episode. All right. Peace. Peace.